0: Humility and honesty are the foundations of the program. That's where we have to start from, and that's where everybody has to start from if they want to continue on the recovery journey.
1: Hello and welcome. I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening in as we talk with leaders in our community. Joining me today is Jacob Grillo with Conquer. Addiction. They provide a range of evidence based treatment options, including medications that have been proven to help people conquer and overcome their addictions and psychiatric illnesses. Jacob Grillo with Conquer Addiction is with us today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Why don't we just hit the road running? Have you tell us what is Conquer Addiction?
0: Conquer Addiction is really a psychiatry practice. Uh, We just really emphasize and specialize in triple therapy for opiate use disorder and triple therapy, just what that means is that we, we treat people with medications for opiate use disorder, common ones being Suboxone and Vivitrol, Uh, but we also try to manage those patients' psychiatric care as well. So that's often a gap uh, between those with, who have substance use disorder and mental health. So we're trying to combine services and then we provide a level of psychotherapy to our patients too.
1: Is it a place that you go? Is it a rehab center? Currently,
0: we're uh, outpatient. uh, So just like going to your doctor's office, Uh, we're located in Monroe, but we also have a fairly decent grip on telehealth. So we actually service people all across Washington state currently as well.
1: What happens? How does somebody, do they just decide I need help? Sometimes that
0: happens. Uh, Most of the time people have hit their current rock bottom and they, they feel hopeless and they, so they reach out. Certainly some people do that on their own. Others are mandated by some agency or they're kind of pushed into it by family members. But ultimately people in recovery who do well embrace it and decide to do treatment on their own.
1: When they come in, do they go through a certain amount of time, like six months or a year? How does that work?
0: Uh, we don't really have a, a, a limit on how long somebody stays with us. Our focus is medication. So medications for opiate use disorder can last anywhere from six months to some the rest of somebody's life. So we don't have a program. What I would say is that uh, it's really considered about the two-year mark of sobriety where people are considered to be in a safer zone than in in regard to the recovery progress it's not a short-term treatment by any means we hope people form good relationships with the providers here and uh, we can help assist them along their recovery journey
1: you talk about the triple called
0: triple therapy
1: tell us a little bit about each element so medically assisted treatment is that new and what is it how does that work
0: Sure. So medication assisted treatment or uh, medications for opiate use disorder really is focused on medications that can really be helpful for somebody's recovery. The most common drug is called buprenorphine, and that comes with many different names. Suboxone is probably the one people are most common with. That's a brand. And then there's other medications called Vivitrol and Suboxone. Why it's so effective is because when somebody has been using a very strong opiate for, for a while, their brain structure has changed. It's, it's not, it's not the same as it used to be. What Suboxone does is it activates the same receptors as the opiates they were using, but, but only about halfway. So people have been using use Suboxone and they just feel normal again. They don't, they don't get high from Suboxone. It's just about... Feeling normal.
1: What I think I know is people not in recovery. So family members, mm-hmm. um, different people that, that I end up talking to feel like, oh, well, they're just on another drug. So can you talk about that? Because I think if people are more educated, they might yeah. be more supportive in someone's recovery rather than taking away something that could be helpful.
0: Maybe the underlying cause is important to talk about here when it comes to Uh, suboxone. When anybody has a great experience in life, something extravagant like winning a lottery or getting proposed to or something like that, we have a certain amount of dopamine that's released and this is measurable. And the normal person at the most exciting moment of their life will reach a dopamine level of about 100 nanograms per milliliter. A person who uses methamphetamines for the first time has their dopamine shoot up to 1100 nanograms per milliliter. So you're talking a tenfold increase above what's normal. And so what the brain does with dopamine is that it's your your reward chemical of your brain. So it it attaches this memory and this bond to this drug that is really uh, primitive. It's really a a drive to get this drug. Your brain perceives it as necessary. When I counsel my patients, I I talk about the different parts of our brain and really our frontal lobe of our brain is our thinking part. So it's the rationale. It's it's where we can sit and we can look at somebody and be like, how could you do that? How could you, you've wrecked your whole family. How could you keep using drugs? That's the rational part of our brain. That is very unfunctional, I'd say, in, in, the, in the person who's currently using uh, substances illicitly. Because the rest of their brain, the midbrain back, is really a, an automated process of telling them that they need it. Just like water. like It's, it's that powerful. And so the more they use it, the less they get joy from it. Dopamine receptors will will decrease. The amount of active receptors will decrease, which means they need to use more and more drug to get the same effect. The flip of that is when they're not using that drug, their dopamine levels are tanked way lower than yours or mine would ever be. So our lowest low of dopamine would be like 40 nanograms per uh, milliliter and 50 is where we sit when we're just feeling normal. 40 for you and I is that day when we just feel like not getting out of bed and maybe I'll call in sick today. You just don't feel you're unmotivated. You just don't want to do anything for somebody who's below that. They physically can't do anything. And so their constant pursuit is to that drug of choice. And it's not just, this isn't just a pattern in in drugs. We can see this in, in all sorts of behaviors as well. We, what we do is we form bonds to something in life. What Suboxone does to help that is it is it increases that dopamine level again. It helps them to feel normal. Just the, the the mechanism of how it works. There's a ceiling effect, so you don't really grow tolerant to it. The risk of overdose is very low because you're not activating the same way as you would with other opiates. It's a really life-changing med. The biggest things we still hear is, well, you're just replacing one drug for another drug. And I would say that this that is kind of true, but we're also gaining functionality. And that's what we're really aiming for is we, we gain functionality uh, from using Suboxone. And we see lots of people who do very well on it, who come from homelessness to having a family and having stable housing and, and things like that. So I would say that a lot of us function off of an, I- an ideal rather than what works. And so, yeah, the ideal is that none of us ever need medications for anything. But the reality is a lot of us do need medications for something. Whether it's diabetes, hepatitis, blood pressure, we need medications for these things. And so Suboxone, I, in my opinion, is just another one of those medications.
1: We have the medically assisted treatment and then the psychotropic medication management. Is that different than counseling? And
0: Yeah. So this is really referring to the psychiatric component of, of what we do. About 50% of people who have substance use disorder have a treatable mental health condition with medications. And the inverse is true as well. So, those with uh, a mental health condition also are at a high risk for substance use disorder. So, what we noticed was a a lack of treatment for those with substance use disorder um, in regard to their psychiatric medications. It's very difficult to find somebody to manage uh, your psychiatric meds. So, this would be medications that you might use for anxiety depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, PTSD, all of the above. Yeah. So that's that's what the psychotropic medication management is about.
1: Because it seems like early in recovery efforts, it was all about abstinence and all about connecting. And like, maybe it was overlooked that people were getting addicted because maybe they had some underlying issues.
0: Yeah, certainly when somebody's depressed, all those drugs will make you feel better. That's how it starts usually. And then it just gets worse. Your depression gets worse um, and you need more of the drug. If we can treat the underlying problems, if we can treat somebody's major depressive disorder, if we can treat uh, their underlying PTSD, if we can treat their ADHD in, in a lot of cases, they become a lot more functional and a lot less likely to go back to drug use.
1: Third is counseling, and so is that one on one. Is it group? How does that work?
0: Yeah, currently it's it's one on one. So right now we have two uh, practitioners. Myself, I'm a physician associate, and uh, my counterpart is a nurse practitioner. We've both been doing substance use disorder treatment, addiction medicine for for quite a while, and we just really love recovery. We love people in recovery. We've both been impacted by recovery. And so psychotherapy is really starting to dig deep into the things that happened to make us who we are and how we can be productive and start to work on those things from a lifestyle standpoint uh, rather than just a medication standpoint.
1: So can you talk a little bit about either trauma or ACEs?
0: So ACEs has always been a fascinating topic, adverse child, childhood experiences. There's quite a few, right, that um, people go through um, some sort of trauma, abuse, an absent parent, one of the statistics, and uh, I probably can't remember it precisely, but, but the amount of, of people incarcerated who grew up without a father is, is very, very high. And so that definitely plays into it. And that's why I think psychotherapy is just so, so important is to kind of, I think it's important to identify what happened. I think it gives people a level of um, enlightenment of like, oh, this is why I am the way I am right now. <laughs> like that happened to me. And so now I believe this pattern or I believe this thing about myself. Um, we talk a lot about identity and um, because I do believe that those, those adverse childhood experiences really, they teach us something negative about ourselves, even if it's subconscious. And what kids do is everything's their fault. So if, if kids witness their parents fighting, kids internalize that as their problem. And they don't know how to process it. They don't know how to work through it. So they they develop a level of trauma through that. And they don't even know why their behaviors are the way they are. They can't link the two. So that's where psychotherapy starts to come in. And then the the end of that is, okay, once we've kind of established why things are the way they are, then we can start to attack. Okay. So how do we start to fix this? And one of the things I do, um, as I mentioned, is, is really a lot of what I call identity work. We talk about who they are and and how their beliefs and their anxiety and their depression and all that stuff is uh, a lot of that comes from this underlying belief, negative belief that they have had their whole, probably their whole life almost.
1: Jacob, what brought you to this work?
0: Yeah. So a little about myself, I grew up in Washington in Snohomish County. So, uh, and I'm doing the work back in my, kind of my hometown. I I didn't have a substance use disorder growing up. I grew up in church, actually. I grew up in a in a Christian church and and I found a lot of my own identity in being like a Christian kid, a good Christian kid. But for me, there there was a lot still was a lot lacking. I I still was confused and, and uh not happy. And that's that's just the reality of of my, uh, it's not like I had a, a bad childhood. I felt like I have a very normal childhood, but there was something something lacking and ended up joining the military and I was a medic in the military for four years. And I went to a Bible college after that, trying to f- figure out what I wanted to do with my life. <laughs> and then I, uh, I ended up going to PA school, physician associate school. And while I was there, I did a clinical preceptorship at a drug and alcohol uh, recovery facility. And uh, my time there was actually spent quite a bit in, in groups, in 12-step groups, in art therapy groups. And what I found was a realness to people that I hadn't experienced in my life yet. And it's, I think that was the seed that planted the idea of recovery in my mind. And how it uh, is really a beneficial process for for anybody to go through, not even just those with substance use disorder. And why did I think that? Well, I thought that because I saw more realness in people in recovery than I had ever seen from any of the people that I grew up with, in the in the churches I went to and things like that. So that's kind of where the seed planted for me. And then I got uh, my first position as a PA working at the Monroe Correctional Complex. And while I was there, I was really overseeing two populations, the maximum security folks and uh, the violator population. And the violator population, there's just a ton of addiction that I I saw, like the effects of addiction that I saw coming through the door all the time. And I really started to grow kind of compassion and a desire to help them. And at the same time, just Probably by design, uh, the Department of Corrections was kind of implementing their own work with medications for opiate use disorder. So I got to be very involved with that and help develop policy and procedure for the Department of Corrections. I've always kind of just wanted to open some sort of a practice that was surrounding addiction medicine, but I was very comfortable in my job and I didn't really feel like I had the time to to commit. Finally, I did. I was able to leave my employment there and start my, my practice here. I think COVID pushed that to some extent. I think that the problem got worse during COVID, uh, mental health and substance use disorder. And that really gave me the opportunity to serve in the, in the way I wanted to serve. And, and uh, I guess that's where I how I got here.
1: We're talking with Jacob Grillo with Conquer Addiction. Where can we find you?
0: Yeah, so you can go to www.conqueraddictionclinic.com. And that will have some info about, about us and uh, where we're located and how you can reach us.
1: If somebody is wanting to look into this, does, do you take insurance?
0: Yeah, great question. So like I said, our, our focus is opiate use disorder. And um, so with anybody who has opiate use disorder, the exception of Medicare, we will accept them into our practice. So we take all the Medicaid plans and all the the private or commercial insurances as well.
1: One thing that I think a lot about when I was a little girl, there was a commercial about alcoholism and it showed a guy. I can't remember which progression, if it started with the guy on the street or with the businessman, but it's like, this is what we think it is. The problem has gotten so bad. It's easy to connect addiction to homelessness. That's not the only population. Can you say more about that?
0: Yeah, you're right. Uh, homelessness is actually, how many people do I see that are homeless is less than 10%. Most have stable housing and, and some, quite a few, um, not only have stable housing, but they have families and and kids and and a husband or a wife and, and a job. And that's true of pretty much any substance. It can really penetrate uh, into, into anybody's life. I would note going back to the kind of the physiology is there, there still is a, a genetic component to how somebody bonds to, to drugs. So really genetics play a huge role, but genetics don't discriminate on how, uh, what your home looks like.
1: When I was running Esther's Place, there was a couple of things I noticed. One is there was a, a good percentage of people who were homeless who said they were raised homeless. Their parents were on the street, which for some reason that shocked me. And then the other shocking thing was people that came in had regular jobs. They were nurses and and yeah. lawyers. They ended up getting surgery and getting addicted. So can you talk a little bit about that?
0: So actually the, the history of opiate use disorder, there's always throughout all history has kind of been a drug that has kind of penetrated the, the community the most. And But most of them have remained relatively stable. But what happened is in the early 1990s, pharmaceutical companies came out with uh, narcotic pain meds and uh, oxycodone and and push that as a very safe, non-addictive medication. Turns out they were very wrong. We discovered this in the late 1990s. And then in around 2008, physicians started to cut their patients, uh, opiate pain medications that they'd been on for 10 years or 20 years maybe. And that really pushed forward illicit drug use. So people now are going to find dealers who can just give them their medication. So that's when we started to see the, the overdose rates climb and then about 2014 or 15, fentanyl really took over, which is a synthetic opiate. That's very, very potent. It's about 100 times stronger than morphine. And that's what's really led um, and drive the um, opiate overdose epidemic that we have right now is fentanyl.
1: So when I look at your webpage and I see, number one, I have thought for a long time that we need more than just recovery. We need mental health support. People go through recovery and then all of a sudden they realize, oh, my gosh, I still have mental health issues and nobody addresses that. So when I look at your page, I think of hope. So can you talk a little bit about, I mean, it sounds like you came to this because you had compassion and you had hope. So can you shed a little light on that?
0: Hope is necessary. I have a, a psychiatrist that I work really closely with, and his name's John Berner, and he owns his own psychiatry practice in Woodinville. And one of the first things he he mentioned to me was that uh, you always have to give your patients hope. And I think that's so true. Whether it's something that's, hey, you know, there's this medication that's being studied, just hang on for a couple more years kind of a thing. And, and hope really does drive our will to, to do better. I've countered very few patients who I genuinely don't think want to get better. <laughs> very few, almost all of my patients truly desire to get better. It's a very confusing thing for them to go through, to, to do the things you don't want to do. It's just, it's very confusing. <laughs> Most of us have experienced that to some, some level. I, I joke with people and I say, how many times have you told yourself you're done with McDonald's? You know, <laughs> how many times have we said that to ourselves? I'm done. I'm not going to go there again. And Well, and behold, we're driving through getting our our McDouble again.
1: (laughs) What would you say to somebody? They maybe have someone in their family and they've actually told them not to do it or they've judged them. What would you say to that person to help them understand the power or the benefit?
0: Well, what I would kind of say too is, is that get your foot in the door somewhere that uh, a place that you want someone to help you. I wouldn't say that we push medications on people at all. I think we're really here uh, uh, to help people along the recovery that they choose for themselves. So if people come to us and they're like, I have a problem, but I don't want medications, then we're gonna help them uh, in that avenue. In general though, if somebody is facing some criticism for thinking about medications, what would I say to that person? They have to know that, you know, how important are, do these people understand, I guess, what's what's going on? Do they have the, I caution myself on saying uh, expert opinion, because <laughs> I don't necessarily think people love that uh, phrase anymore. Nobody knows another person's journey, I suppose, right? And the reason we named Conquer Addiction... Conquer addiction is because conquering really talks about this uh, climbing of peaks. Really, life is an unending climb; it doesn't stop. But we can look at that peak and get there, and that's really what it's about, right? So we can we can see that peak ahead of us and get there. We need to stop thinking about our arrival in some place. We need to really just set our eyes on the on the next goal and get there. So people really need to think about what what's their goals. Well, they don't. We have the ideal, which is. They don't want to ever use drugs, but what's a goal that we can get to before there? Well, let's, let's get you from fentanyl to suboxone. That's a great step, right? And then once you're on it, then we can decide what's next, that kind of thing. So what I would say to those people is just talk to somebody you trust, somebody who you think has good uh, opinions and some experience. Um, And it doesn't have to be a doctor. It doesn't have to be a clinic. Just get and talk to somebody who you you really can follow and start to take advice. Humility and honesty are the foundations of the program. That's where we have to start from. And that's where everybody has to start from if they want to continue on the recovery journey.
1: Sometimes I think families can be the worst enemy because they have opinions. And two things I noticed. One is they don't understand medication. So they say, don't do it. And number two, they think once the addict stops, they should be able to just tomorrow... Be back in a regular life. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: No, like, yeah, we mentioned earlier, it's about two years before the brain really starts to heal from, from a drug addiction. So that two years is the time where we need to stabilize their life. We need to make sure they're not homeless anymore. We need to make sure that they have strong connections with other people and strong bonds with real human beings. So families can be, and we're really intertwined with our families. We don't want to hurt our families. At the same time, our families are often the people we hurt the most, and they're the ones that hurt us the most. Their, their words are the most piercing words, and our words are the most piercing words to them. And we're, we're less afraid because we're less afraid of them rejecting us. So we're able to be more ruthless to them because we won't they won't reject us and vice versa that's really unhealthy but that's the way it is sometimes people just have to separate from loved ones for a little bit we talk about boyfriend girlfriends that are in recovery and often our suggestion to them is to let's cease this relationship and come back together when we have two whole people rather than two kind of half people (laughs) that are that are not healthy and whole so we do some work with them and then if they choose to get back together they do it's not a requirement that they break up, but it's, it is definitely one of my suggestions because I see so many times where one person uh, is doing good and then the other is not, and they just get pulled down.
1: Well, and you talk about identity. I'm a coach, so I see that so much. And when you are trying to recover as a couple, it's very difficult to focus on one identity, which is important if you want to Really yeah. figure out who you are and where you're going in this life.
0: I'm really pro-recovery program. I'm I'm very pro 12-step. I don't think every 12-step program out there is amazing, but there are some really amazing 12-step programs. And if a person commits a year of their life to getting a sponsor and working through the steps, it really is uh, life-transforming. Future of Conquer Addiction, uh, we do hope to eventually buy a facility where we can all work collaboratively together. And this would be a facility that offers co-occurring outpatient treatment. So that would be everything from uh, certified peer counselors to substance use dependency professionals and mental health therapists, and also prescribers like myself. And that's kind of our goal. And it would be a place where you can go to your outpatient appointment with your your doctor or go there for, for your IOP. IOP is intensive outpatient treatment. So some people elect to be in an intensive program, others elect to be in a less intensive program. Um, A lot of people in IOP are court ordered to do some sort of intensive outpatient. But our hope is that we would be able to, to facilitate that as well as the less intense once a week Uh, maybe twice a week meeting with a mental health therapist or a a substance use dependency provider.
1: And again, we can find you at
0: www.conqueraddictionclinic.com.
1: We're talking with Jacob Grillo with Conquer Addiction. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, thank you, Lori.
1: I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference.